Welcome to the Range of Motion Podcast. Today I had the opportunity to speak with the one and only Dr. Molly Maloof. I first heard Dr. Molly on Mind Pump's podcast, and right after I listened to that podcast, I knew I wanted to have her on my show as well. Um, Dr. Molly is an, she's a medical doctor, she's an MD, uh, but she is someone who who really looks at health from a holistic point of view and uses many, you know, Eastern medicine techniques and just really, really embodies what I believe a, a medical doctor should, should, uh, should be and, and should, and should stand for in, in, uh, in today's, in today's society. You know, me and, me and Dr. Molly talked, we talked about how we can change, you know, the culture of, uh, Western medicine and the fitness industry and, you know, really truly impact people. We talked about birth control and women's hormones. And then we had a discussion also about, um, we had a discussion about gut health and the gut's impact on the, on the entire body and how, you know, the gut is basically your second brain. Um, we were actually a little bit short on time, so I think this is going to be a little bit shorter episode. But the amount of the amount of information and the amount of knowledge that that Dr. Molly brings to the table is incredible, and I am super fortunate to have interviewed her for for the show. So this is going to be a really good episode, really one that you guys are going to want to listen to. Um, so yeah, without any further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Molly Maloof. Hey guys, one more thing. I told you guys as an incentive, I was going to give you guys something and I announced this on last week's podcast as well, but my ebook, The Results Triangle, is actually in the podcast notes. You can go check that out, click the link and download it. It's completely free. It is the three big rocks that you need to be paying attention to to reach your health and fitness goals, nutrition, training, and recovery. And there's also a four-week training program in there. Give it a try. I want to hear some feedback from you guys. So yeah, without any further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Molly Maloof. All right. So I am here with the one and only Dr. Molly Maloof. Dr. Molly, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Ben? Good. So one of the reasons why I love your view of, um, you know, of health is because you are looking at so many other, so many other aspects of, of health versus, you know, versus other Western medicine doctors. Tell, tell everybody a little bit about how how you got your start in in becoming obviously a an MD and you know how you gained such a such a wide spectrum of you know more eastern i guess medicine techniques um okay well first and foremost uh, i went to medical school got my md and in medical school i realized there was a lot that we weren't being taught that was really important to human health and things like sleep and exercise and nutrition and functional medicine and integrative medicine and you know psychology and relationships and all these really important things just weren't being taught to us. So I designed a course um, called Physician Heal Thyself Evidence-Based Lifestyle. And I did this because through changing my lifestyle in medical school and going from a not-so-healthy lifestyle where I was kind of sacrificing everything for studies to 
becoming more balanced, sleeping normal hours, eating at normal meal times, exercising regularly through yoga, and um, you know, limiting my caffeine consumption, among other things. In about nine months, I dramatically improved my test scores and my performance and my happiness. So I designed that course as a response to the number of students around me who were wondering what I was doing that was making me do so much better in school than they had seen me do before. And for reference, I went from an average on my first board exam to a 99th percentile on my second board exam. And that's not very common. So it was a reaction to people asking me, well, what do I do to do what you do? You know, how, how do I do better? Because I had so many students coming to me telling me how much they were struggling. And it's really common in medical school for students to become burned out and stressed out and Frankly, it's just, it's a rough time to be alive. Like, it's just hard. It's hard <laughs> right. Yeah. So I um, got really interested in all these aspects of medicine because I had some mentors in medical school who were teaching, um, you know, osteopathy and acupuncture, integrative medicine, as I mentioned, functional medicine. And I, and I shouted with these doctors because I wanted to learn about what they were doing differently. And so that's really where my start, that's where I really got, where I got my start is in medical school. Right. I mean, and that's, and I think that's awesome. I was just, I'm actually reading, reading a book right now. And it, I, I literally just posted something on my Instagram story that was, you know, they did a study about, um, about exercise and just exercises impact alone on, on depression. And they took three groups, they took one group and they put them on antidepressants. They took one group and they put them on antidepressants and they also prescribed them exercise. And then they took the other group and just prescribed exercise. And what was crazy is the group that, that was prescribed just the exercise did just as well as the other two groups. And on top of that, like in the months, in the coming months, I think, I guess it was like six months later or nine months later, there had been like people who relapsed on the, on the drugs, like 60% or something like that were, were still depressed. And only 9% of the people who were prescribed just the exercise were like had relapsed into a depressive state. So mm-hmm. I, found, I, I found that to be, I found that to be pretty interesting. And I think it's pretty crazy that, that exercise can have such a, such a, such a big impact on, on people's lives. And it's kind of like something that is not really, not really talked about as much as it should be, I think. No, it's not. And definitely not taught well to students in school. And, you know, I'm going to be completely honest with you here, which, you know, I'm generally just an open book, but I was sedentary through my 20s. And I was really not as healthy as I was, um, as I could have been. Um, I mean, I did do yoga for like part of medical school, but I would say 80% of my 20s were mostly sedentary. And part of that's because I was just studying the whole time, right? And I was just not doing nothing but studying. And I have to say that when I slowly, like towards my late 20s, early 30s, it really started occurring to me that, oh my God, I'm getting older and this is happening. (laughs) And And I started doing all this reading and exercise and it became patently, patently clear that people who age the best are people who exercise the most and not like ultra marathon runners or, you know, crazy Olympic athletes, but I'm talking mostly consistently throughout their lives. Like, I I think there's a, there's a, there's kind of like maybe a U-shaped curve or like a bell curve around exercise where like you get a certain benefit. And then if you go too much, you get 
detriments. But yep. for the most part, people who exercise tend to age better, tend to have better mental health, you have better skin. I mean, it's literally the antidote to stress at a baseline physiologic level. And people don't think about it like that because they think about it as this like thing that causes them to be stressed out because they're like, oh, I have to go exercise. But it turns out that, you know, evolutionarily speaking, exercise was what we did when something dangerous approached us. So we'd run away from, right? So So you'd get that, so you'd get that, so you'd get that huge, that big spike in cortisol. And from what I, from what I understand and from what I've learned, you know, throughout my, you know, certifications and stuff is that when you get that, when you get that big spike in cortisol, when you do exercise actually in your normal everyday life, when, you know, things stress you out, you don't get as high of a, of a cortisol response. Is that, is that along well, the, right, the right line? Let me, let me, let's talk through this a little bit. So I think that there are certain types of exercise that can contribute to cortisol release more than others. Right. Um, in fact, yoga is pretty well established to be parasympathetic dominant rather yes. than sympathetic yes, dominant. Absolutely. So it's not going to be as big of a cortisol response, but weightlifting for sure, you're going to get a bit of a cortisol response. Now cardio, right. it really depends on the kind of cardio you're doing. Like low intensity cardio should not be cortisol inducing. Whereas high, but if you're, but if you're sprinting away from a cheetah or something like that, right. like, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the thing about exercise that I, I kind of, I talk to people about who are, you know, who do have HPA access dysfunction is for people who are really struggling from like adrenal, um, dysfunction, you know, basically hypothalamic pituitary adrenal dysfunction. You're not, I, I wouldn't necessarily prescribe them a heavy duty, um, exercise lifting program or like a heavy duty high intensity interval training program. I would probably get them to just move more consistently and then also do more yoga because there's, I mean, there's a lot of people who burn themselves out through exercise. Like last year I was lifting all summer with my boyfriend at the time and I was really stressed out and I, I was really, really, really stressed. And like, frankly, a lot of it was psychological and self-induced. And I've learned since last summer that like, in fact, that's not the best way to handle stress is to like be more stressed out psychologically around it. But lesson learned. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that I was lifting weights a lot and I wasn't seeing a lot of the gains that you'd expect in the gym. I wouldn't right. see, I wasn't seeing a lot of the muscle mass being put on. I wasn't seeing a lot of fat loss. Um, mostly because I think I was cortisol dominant and I was a little bit too high in cortisol. So like it's a balancing act. And that's why I, I, I want to bring it up to you because like, I think that for a healthy human, we should definitely be exercising, but is it, it you know, it, it's all about the type and intensity and it's all about that gradual adaptation. Slow change over time to me is the best way to get into an exercise program, not to just like jump into something really heavy duty very quickly. Um, that's, that's my own personal experience with exercise. It's like, it took me from going from sedentary to walking 3000 steps a day to 10,000 steps a day to doing more runs, to doing more, weightlifting to do I started with kettlebells and then I went to weights and then you know I started adding yoga back in and now I do weights and yoga and a little bit of cardio like more more walking than anything but Mm -hmm. I found that like the slow change over time is really the most effective for me yep 100 percent. well I love that approach and I mean even with somebody like who is a nutrition coaching client of mine like if you know once I once I see their their nutrition logs after the course of a week or two weeks and I see that they haven't even like touched a green vegetable, then, you know, a good place for that, that person to start would just be to say, Hey, like, 
let's eat one serving of vegetables this week every day. And that's going to be a win in the win column. And the yeah. next, week, next, then the next week after that, we'll add, we'll add something on top of that. So I, I completely agree with, with, with that approach with nutrition and with exercise realistically, because I mean, I, I, I was walking down the beach today and I, I was listening to, to a podcast the other day and it was actually, it was mind pumping. Sal was talking about like scarcity mindset. And as I was walking down the beach today, I saw, I mean, 90 to 95% of the people on the beach, I was like, wow, I could help. I, I could help these people in some way, shape or form with, with nutrition or exercise. If it's just as simple as like asking them to eat one serving of vegetables every single day, because you know, there's so many people in the fitness industry that are like, Oh my gosh, like I, you know, I don't want anybody to steal my clients or like the information is out there about health and nutrition, but I think it just gets, I think it gets really mixed up in, in this, you know, horrible fitness industry marketing of like, Oh, you've got to have like rip shredded abs and like all these, you know, crazy supplements to, you know, induce all of this, uh, crazy fat loss effect. And like that's that in reality, that's really not what it's about. No, not at all. I don't think that's One, true at all. I think that most yeah. people, you know, I, I've learned a lot from uh, optimizing the health of individuals over the years. And the thing that I've learned the most is that, and this is going to sound really, it's really like simplified, but most people, the vast majority of the, of like the population would just benefit from listening to the national guidelines, but they don't do it because it's not personalized because right. yes, it is like, okay, yes, we know we need to eat five servings of vegetables a day, but what is the serving and which vegetables? Right. And right. so like a lot of people are struggling with just like the decision of how to do the simplest things like fruits and vegetables. There's like, there's just so much misinformation about even carbohydrates and fruit as well. That yeah, no kidding. causes people to just give up. Um, or, to think that they're getting fruits and vegetables through juice, which is actually not really no really a serving. I mean, I would only consider green juice that's made of pure vegetables to be a reasonable drink. Yes, exactly. But yeah, I mean, like people really struggle with the basics and that's what's challenging, you know? Yeah, it really is. Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to completely shift gears here because I know you're kind of short on time. Um, one of the things I wanted to cover with you was the issue of birth control and women's hormones. This is something that mm. um, has impacted a lot of my, um, the people that I've worked with, people in my family, people, you know, girlfriends and stuff like that. So I want you to talk about, uh, about, you know, hormonal birth control and like the, you know, IUDs and, you know, um, why it's such a hot topic and why doctors seem to be handing it out like, you know, almost like candy. I don't know if you've read the the period repair manual by Laura Bryden, but I'm in the middle of, of reading. Yeah. Which, yeah. Was, I mean, I was actually was, tapping into her ahead. stuff recently. Well, nice. um, yeah, that, that was her. Yeah, that was you know? her. That was her analogy. Uh, that, that 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 it's kind of being handed out like candy. You know, what are the what are the potential dangers of 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 this being kind of an epidemic? Well, let's get real. Things are getting worse because we're going to actually have um, birth control over the counter within the next few years. So it's just going to get worse. Um, oh, wow. I mean, here's the thing: like 
a lot of women have hormonal dysfunction and they do because of the way that they eat, because of the water that we drink, because of the toxins in their environment. And frankly, what's not being discussed is the endocrine disruptors in the cosmetics that we use to appear more beautiful so that we can reproduce. It's crazy ironic that we are causing infertility through the things that we are putting on our bodies in order to become more attractive to the opposite sex. Like the fact that, that like the whole population doesn't see that this is happening is crazy to me because like, you know, it's advertising companies convincing women and men that they have to alter their appearance in order to be attractive to the opposite sex so they can reproduce. That's legitimately what's underneath all of this bullshit. Sorry, cuss, but it's true. No, you're no. (laughs) Hey, this is a, yeah, you can definitely cuss on my podcast. I cuss all the time. Okay, cool. So so like, first of all, we need to talk about hormonal dysfunction. If we want to talk about birth control, because the reason why most women are on birth control is a lot of times it's for hormones and not just for preventing pregnancy. Yes. So I went on it for both reasons. I I was having lots of hormonal um, breakouts and I was wondering what I could do to fix that. And so I started taking birth control and it got rid of my hormonal breakouts. And it also made my mood more even keeled. So what it does is it totally tamps down your natural hormone response so that you turn off your body's ovulation. So when you get a period, when you have, uh, when you're on birth control, it's not a real period. It's just the shedding of your lining, but it's not like it's, um, like you've ovulated. So right. at the end of the day, what, what most women don't realize is that birth control affects the liver and the liver is intimately sensitive to all the things that it, it has to do. Your liver has so many jobs. It literally has to do so many things. Like people to- totally underestimate the po- like the power of the liver, but also just how frankly important of a role it plays in detoxification. So you're adding an an extra level of toxic burden to your liver when you add birth control into your body. And it took me a few years to actually fully detox off of birth control because my liver was not normal when I went off of it. The birth, the the hormonal breakouts came back and, um, and you know, like I had to figure them out naturally, which was what most people don't want to do. Most people want an easy fix. Um, I think a lot of people go on the IUD because it's supposed to be a gentler approach. It's more localized hormones. Usually it's progesterone released. I tried the copper IUD. I did not have a good reaction to that. I had very heavy bleeding and, and anemia very quickly. And I was wondering, like, why is it so hard for me to exercise? And, oh, I was super anemic. So I pulled out my IUD, and then I decided that I would be using condoms, and I would be using the natural family planning method and just tracking my ovulation using apps and devices and, you know, luteinizing hormone strips and, and really just like talking to every partner that I had sex with, um, which wasn't very many, but enough that I, you know, boyfriends and, you know, I would tell them, look, like this is my choice and I don't want to have a child right now. So we are going to use condoms and we are going to track my period. And I would appreciate if you would track it too. So you knew, that this is what I'm going through because I'm going to be a certain way part of the month. Like women's hormones change over time. That is what makes us special and and women, you know, and men's hormones are totally different than our, than than our hormones. And that's what makes us such fascinating creatures is that we have very different experiences biologically. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the whole concept of female birth control, you know, being like sort of castrating women is, 
is it is maybe a slight exaggeration, but it's not too far from the truth. Um, that was, you know, the author of period repair model. That, that's her statement, Laura, Lara's statement. But yeah. I do think that it's close to that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's definitely really, really crazy. I, it's just, what's crazy to me is how, how big of an impact it's had on, you know, just people, people in my life, you know, that I, you know, that I have personal relationships with. And, you know, like I said, clients, like it is, it's almost, you know, in, in a, in a, in a client intake form, you have to put, you have to like, make sure you put on there that, you know, under supplements that, you know, hormonal birth control does count here because like, it's almost something that, that women won't even, they, I don't think that they would list it on the intake form if I didn't say something about it. Yeah. And I think what's also kind of concerning about birth control is that a lot of women are delaying childbirth to the thirties and I'm one of them. And this is something that we need to think about because if we've been suppressing our hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access for like, Can you, years, hear me, Dr. Malik? you know, a lot of women are suppressing their hypothalamic pituitary gonadal access. And then they go off of birth control and then they expect to be fertile immediately. And, you know, according to Lara's book, it, it can take years to get back to normal. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really worth thinking about, like, are we, um, meddling with our hormones to the point where like, it's not surprising that women are having trouble giving birth in their thirties. That could be part of it. Um, I mean, we don't really know. And I don't think a lot of people are talking about it this way. I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it this way. I think we're just, we just assume that these things are safe and we have because they're FDA approved, but you know, there, I have, I always say this when it comes to um, drugs, there's really no free lunch when it comes to biology. There is always a trade-off. For every benefit, there is a risk that, and, and you have to take that into account before you put anything into your body. So what do you, how, how can we change the culture in, you know, in Western medicine, but not only Western medicine, like how can people like myself change the, the culture of the fitness industry in a more positive way? And, you know, hopefully, you know, through people like yourself and people like Laura and, you know, other people that are leading researchers in the field, how can, how can we, how can we change, I guess, the, 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 the culture behind, behind these things and really, and really truly start to help people? Um, I mean, my personal belief is that we need to just start talking about this stuff more openly right. and, um, Frankly, I, I think one of the best ways to change this culture, and I've been, I've actually, I just gave a talk last weekend uh, at this conference called Women Teach Men, and not the greatest name, but it, you know, it, it really turned out to be an amazing conference because I spoke about how men and women, if they understood each other's hormones better, they would actually understand each other better. And I think that a lot of women feel like they have to suppress their hormone cycle in order to be, uh, normal, you know, and a lot of women suffer from premenstrual disorder and PMDD and all sorts of things. And they, they feel like society requires them to be fixed in order to be accepted. And, you know, it's really the woman's responsibility to be, uh, 
in charge of you know contraception in society. So, frankly, one of the best things that can that, that would change culture is if men and women both learn to talk more openly about the basics of human hormones and human reproduction. So one of the things that I think um, men can do is they can really get curious about their, their female clients and their female partners, hormone systems and cycles and ask them questions about it. Like, you know, are you on birth control? And if you're not on birth control, what is your mode of contraception? And, you know, have you heard of, um, you know, these apps that are great for tracking hormones and do you use them? If you have a partner, one of the best things you can do is you can, you know, track her hormones with her, track her cycle with her and start, start anticipating her needs. I mean, like, I know that I'm not going to be the happiest version of myself a few days before my period. I also, (laughs) I just know that, but I also know that like the first day of my period, I'm going to be kind of tired. My hormones are going to be very low, but I also know that they're going to start rising. And then the first two weeks, you know, those first two weeks of my menstrual cycle, I'm going to be happy and and I'm going to be horny. And then the second half of my cycle, (laughs) my body's going to be like, Hey, my body's going to be like, Hey, you didn't, you didn't get fertilized. So screw you. Um, you know, there goes your estrogen and here comes progesterone. I'm going to be a little more tired, a little bit more somber. And these are just natural cycles of being human. Um, and at this, on the flip side, I'm going to change the subject and talk a bit about how women can understand men's hormones better because women have no idea what it's like to have the amount of testosterone men have. They just do not, <laughs> right. they do not know. I once, and I gave it, I gave this anecdote in my talk last weekend where I got dosed with a male dose of hormones once and a male dose of testosterone. What? You, you did? I got dosed accidentally. Oh, wow. I was at, I was at work. I was sitting down on a chair and the chair was kind of slippery on the, on the, on the arm. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. And we know at this company I worked at, we were making custom compounded hormones for people. And we were um, using labs and genetics to make custom hormones and supplements. And it was a really cool company, really cool product. It really did work well. But I sat down in that chair and I remember thinking, that's strange. My arm's all slippery. Well, I, I ended up, um, you know, thinking about uh, my boss and my coworkers. I was like, why am I thinking about my boss and my coworkers in a way that's like totally inappropriate? And <laughs> it just, it just got... It just got progressively worse throughout the next oh, hour to the point where I had to go to the bathroom and like stare myself in the mirror and be like, what is wrong with you? Like is what is happening right now? And, and then it occurred to me, Oh, I got one of the, my, I got one of my coworkers testosterone cream on my arm. That's why I'm acting this way. Holy crap. If this is what <laughs> men have to deal with every day, then that's nuts. And like, I, I, I would, I mean, like I, I didn't really, think about it as much until the me too movement started. And then I started really thinking about how men and women don't understand each other and how women have zero idea what it's like to be in a man's shoes and how men have no idea what it's like to have hormones that cycle every month and change over time. And like, you know, during pregnancy and postpartum and menopause and like all these things happen to us throughout our lives. And we forget how much they impact our relationships. So yeah, I think that like one of the things that I want to give a TED talk on soon is just this exact thing. Like oh, we need to understand each other. I can't wait to I can't wait to I can't wait to hear that. Is is that something that is going to happen in the future? I mean, I hope so. God, I'm going to talk to my friends at TED. God, that'd be awesome. That would be so awesome. 
All right, Dr. Molly, it's, uh, it's six 30. Um, I don't know. Do, do you have to scurry? Do you have to go? I, I got, I've got about 10 more minutes. Okay. Um, then I want to, I want to dive into one more topic. Um, the sure. impact, the impact of gut health on the human body. Okay. So that's like an hour long discussion, but we can try to summarize it. <laughs> I mean, the gut is so complex, right? Like, first of all, it's this barrier, this mucosal barrier between you and the outside world, first and foremost. And it starts in your mouth and it ends in your butt. And from the very beginning, like when I think about gut health and I think about analyzing a patient's gut health, first thing I ask them is I ask them all about their mouths. And I don't think most doctors ask people about their mouths enough because that's where everything begins. So if someone doesn't have a healthy mouth, then they don't have a healthy heart and they don't have a healthy gut. It's just, it all is intertwined. So really, really important is to take care of your mouth. Just as important as to take care of what you eat is like how much you chew your food, how much you floss, um, how much you brush your teeth. I, I use a diamond clean toothbrush. It's the best thing I've ever purchased for my mouth. Um, and like, you know, I, I just think it's really important to, to think about every aspect of that digestive tract. So, you know, um, a lot of people have, you know, acid reflux and, yep. I think a lot of acid reflux is just fundamentally related to poor diet. And I think most people would get better if they had a really, really healthy diet, but most people are eating crap every day. And even the people who think that they're eating healthy just almost always aren't. There's just so much overconsumption happening in our, in our country. It's not surprising that there's so much acid reflux when so many people are just literally overconsuming food. So that's a problem. Um, and then, you know, you get into um, the fact that like a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of people would benefit from digestive enzymes and, you know, beta and HCL. I personally don't benefit from HCL because it burns my stomach. I definitely do not need that because I have enough stomach acid, but I do like digestive enzymes for sure. Um, and then for the small intestine and the, and the large intestine, right? It's all about making sure that you nourish that gut barrier. And so, for me, I benefited tremendously from giving up gluten because I, I found out I had celiac. But um, a lot of people would benefit from giving it up just for at least a elimination diet for just a month just to see how they feel. Uh, right. I, and that's because just like the wheat is not the same as it used to be a long time ago. Um, there's a lot of food reactions that I think people are blaming the food and it's really not the food's fault. It's actually their gut's fault for reacting yeah. to the food. So Absolutely. when I think about food, when I, when I see somebody with lots of food insensitivities, I think immediately, what's going on with the gut? Is there bacterial overgrowth? Why is there leaky gut? Why is the gut reacting to things that shouldn't be? What is, what is letting things into their body that shouldn't be? Like, why, why is there mucosal lining letting things in when, when it shouldn't be? What's causing that damage to the lining? Is it chronic antibiotic use? Is it, um, you know, preservatives in their food? Is it you know, um, stress is a big cause of right. gut dysfunction. Yeah. And so you have to really pinpoint what's causing that leaky gut in the first place. Stress, stress is one that I see so often among, among clients, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it, 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 as soon as I like introduce, you know, little things, cause I have a, I have a client with IBS and she said it was, you know, giving her big time issues when we first started. And she said she was waking up like in the middle of the night. So I, I made her like send me something fun that she was going to do for herself like every week. And then I told her to, you know, do this, 
you know, meditative practice for like five minutes every day. And what was crazy is that, you know, over the course of, of about a month, her, her IBS started to, started to really calm down. And, and we, we did some other things too. Her protein was extremely high. I mean, she's 130 pounds and she was eating like 160, 160 grams of protein a day. So we, we brought that way down. And when we brought our protein down and we, uh, we added in some, some meditative practices and then, you know, I told her to do something, you know, tell me what you're going to do this week. That's going to be, you know, fun and, and something that you're going to enjoy and look forward to something besides going to the gym. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Once I, once I implemented those things, her, her IBS started to, started to, to decrease, which was, was, was awesome. That's awesome. That is super, super amazing. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, I think that's, I think that's the one that, that obviously I see the most of. And like, this is some, this is even somebody who, you know, was eating, you know, relatively, relatively high quality foods for the most part. Um, But I mean, obviously most people in our society just aren't eating, you know, aren't eating good foods whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, not eat, not slowing down when you're eating as well is really a big problem for a lot of people like yes. eating. I have one of the things. So one of the things that I've been doing, that's been really, really, really helpful for me in my own eating. And, and by the way, I think there's always room for improvement is yes. I recently started writing a food plan for myself and not just like, I've always had things that I've always had like plans that I've consistently kept to, but now I have like this, this um, notebook that like that I've made myself and it's got my daily routine on one end and it's got my food plan on the other end. And like on my food plan, one of the things that I have is I always sit down to eat. And it's so funny that like I find myself um, checking in every day with this food plan and there's a bunch of other things on it. But the fact that like I used to spend so much time standing up eating and just like eating on the go, I was like surprised at how just making this intention to like sit down at a table and eat has actually really changed my own experience with food. And I think that so many of us will just grab a granola bar on the go. And like, that is not the environment that your body wants to be in when it's digesting. It wants to be resting and digesting. Right. Well, so many people, I mean, even, even people that are, you know, that are on their lunch break and stuff at work are like, you know, they're shoving their whole meal like in their face, like, and they're not, or they're like shoving their food in their face and like staring at their phone. They're not like, you know, paying attention to, you know, chewing their food and like enjoying the, the taste and, you know, not rushing through their meals. Like that's something, you know, for me, when, when I was growing up, when my, when my food was sat on the table, it was like there and gone like in two seconds because I was just, you know, inhaling my, my food. And it wasn't until, you know, it wasn't until the last couple of years that I actually started being much more conscious of it because I had like some, you know, digestive issues. I actually had, uh, some liver, um, digestive issues with, you know, I guess, um, processing fats and stuff, which, uh, you know, was the cause of eating, you know, processed crap for years and, you know, not paying attention to, uh, you know, any, any, just sit, the food hit my plate as soon as it hit my plate or as soon as it hit the table, like it was gone. And, um, I think that that had a lot to do with a lot of the, the digestive issues that, that I had going on as well. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that's super powerful and it's something that, 
it's something that I tell people right off the, right off the bat. I talk to them about, you know, how, what is your eating environment? You know, what is, what does that consist mm-hmm. of? Yeah, it's huge. It really, really matters. And just, you know, chewing your food and, you know, I, I think a lot of people underestimate the need for digestive enzymes. And I used to think it was totally made up and just a bunch of crap. But then, um, I realized that like, you know, our food used to come with a lot of digestive enzymes and, you know, humans, I think traditionally, um, ate like fresher meat and now we cook everything. And so I think that there's something to be said to around just giving a little bit of extra, um, help to your digestive system. Um, cause we are also eating pretty regularly and there's like a lot of arguments for and against this concept of like, did we evolve to eat all the meals that we're eating per day or did we eat less often in the past? Um, you know, I, I personally started experimenting with fasting over the last three months and I had so many benefits to my digestion. It was incredible. I love, I love, I love fasting. I literally, it's it's a game changer for me. I I mean, it really is. But the issue I had is that I think I overdid it just a tad because there's always a trade-off when it comes to fasting and, and fertility. So if you're fasting, you're sending the signal to your body that there's and um, if you do that long enough, then it can disrupt your hormone cycles. So it's not that my cycles were, were, were completely off, but they weren't, they weren't regularly, they weren't like the typical 28 days. Right. Um, I was definitely... Um, you, were pushing, you were pushing it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I was pushing it a little bit. But you know what? I, I got such better gut health. And that what made me wonder is, did I have a little bit of a bacterial overgrowth in my gut? And did the uh, fasting actually starve off some of the bad bacteria? Because it's incredible how much my gut is functioning better now that I've been fasting for like the last few months, like major benefits to my gut. So I'm thinking to myself, maybe eating as often as we eat in, in modern life is actually kind of problematic for the gut because food in itself is um, an irritant, right? So right. I think that there's something to be said about eating less often. So about two days a week, I'm starting to eat two meals. Three days a week, I'm eating three meals. Um, three days a week, I'm eating two meals a day. And I'm fasting to, you know, 11 or 12. So I'm doing intermittent fasting intermittently. So like, instead of it being every day intermittent fasting, I'm, I'm doing, um, on days when I'm not lifting, I'm, I'm eating only two meals a day. And I found that that's a nice, like a, a doable thing that I can consistently keep. But I found that when I'm, when I'm weightlifting, I tend to just want to eat more on those days. So right. I'm just eating three meals a day on those weightlifting days. But I'm really, I've really eliminated snacking. And I think that that's actually really helpful for my gut health. Yeah, that well, that that was the big that was the big thing for me because I grew up a, a big snacker, and when I stopped kind of doing that, I mean, now anymore, I just don't, I don't, I don't have the desire to like eat a lot of meal because I mean, I played football in college and stuff, so like I was constantly like trying to get in food and stuff, especially in the summer when it was hot. I mean, you you're literally you're but you could feel your body like needing food. So like, I think all those years of just smashing food in my stomach, like I just don't have the desire to, to like eat a lot of food throughout the day anymore. Like two or three meals, you know, is, is completely, is completely, uh, completely okay for me. You kind of talked about your, 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 um, you're doing some resistance training and strength training right now. Um, that this is, that mm-hmm. this will be, the, this will be the last little thing for you. How is that? How is that going? And where do you, where do you, uh, where do you see that going? Are you actually, are you running one of, uh, mind pumps, mind pumps programs? 
Okay, so I was doing this program that um, my friend, this medical student on this Instagram called Run and Lift, mm-hmm. um, sent me. But then I listened to um, Sal talk on the uh, on Max Lugavare's um, Genius Foods podcast or Genius Genius Life podcast, and I um, yeah. he was and Sal was saying that you know really hitting muscle groups like once a week is not going to lead to the best adaptation. It's and not. <laughs> so he was thinking, so, so, so I have one of Mind Pump's uh, programs and I think I'm going to start back on it. But my biggest issue is that I don't like going to gyms. I have like um, power blocks at home. So mm-hmm. I like doing home workouts with, with, you know, dumbbells. And, you know, every guy always says, you got to go to a gym, you got to have a squat rack. You and I'm just like, not going to do that. So nah, I'm, no. I'm going to do something like, I'm going to do sort of a modified mind pump starting this Saturday or Sunday. And yeah. over the next month, really switch over to like hitting every muscle group at every workout. Um, and then I'm also doing Ashtanga yoga in between, which I think is really helpful too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think anytime you're doing, uh, you know, something, something strenuous on your nervous system, like, you know, strength training three or four days a week, I think it should be paired with some kind of, you know, uh, some, some kind of yoga or some kind of, you know, days where you just are going for walks or, you know, whatever, it, whatever it might be that, that parasympathetic yeah. and sympathetic balance, I think is, I think is super important, especially when you're, especially when you're, when you're resistance training and, you know, you're trying to, you know, gain some muscle or speed your metabolism or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Yeah. So I, I, I think this is awesome, Dr. Molly. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to, uh, to see your, to see your progress here as you start. Uh, yeah. I'm going to start, start posting more photos once I get more, I mean, hopefully after like a month, I think honestly, the funny thing is, is after weightlifting for even a couple of weeks now, I already see a difference in my physique. Like yeah. Sal, Sal was saying um, that, you know, it takes people a lot longer to start seeing shifts. And I actually respond pretty well, but I think I have naturally higher testosterone than most women do. So, well, and I mean, I, mean, I feel, I feel leaner, you, even though my weight hasn't changed at all, but I look, I feel like I look stronger and leaner already. Yeah. And I mean, when you, I think, I think people, I think, I think it's cool. I, I think it's awesome that you're doing this because, you know, the, the big, the big thing that, you know, women get, get afraid to, to lift weights and stuff because they think they're going to get bulky. And, you know, as you know, that's, you know, unless you're eating just tons and tons of food, which, you know, if you're, if you're eating in a huge calorie surplus and you're a woman and you start to resistance train, yeah, the, the odds of you putting on, putting on weight and getting like, I guess a bulkier look could I guess that could happen, but the, the odds of uh, women getting like bulky and, you know, super jacked is, is, is yeah. pretty, 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 pretty tough. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I think, think thinking back to last year when I was doing a lot of lifting, I was definitely doing like, um, different muscle groups every day. And it's not surprising that I didn't see the results that I anticipated, you know, just, yeah, just because, just because you weren't hitting, uh, hitting things as, as frequently as, mm-hmm. and like, and, and, and that's the, and, and I mean, that's the, that's the issue with, with most programs, you know, they're just, you know, one time a week, super, super intense beast mode, no days off. And, you know, there's, they don't take frequency into account. And, uh, 
and uh, that stems from, you know, the years of bodybuilding magazines and guys on steroids and, and yeah. all that, all that good well, stuff. That, yeah. The thing that but I heard Michelle talk am, about was that, uh, um, when people, know, when people went uh, on, no, go ahead. Well, Sal was saying when people went on steroids, like you don't actually need to work out each muscle group as frequently because you get a bigger response. Anabolic so signal. Kinda, yep. Yeah. So he said, so he said that that's sort of what led to the different muscle group type, you know, bodybuilding regimens, but for everyone else it's, who's not on anabolic steroids, we need to send the signal more often. So we'll see what happens next week when I, when I start training every group every day or sorry, Monday, Wednesday, Friday and see what happens. Oh yeah. You're going to, you're going to make all kinds of gains You're, I mean, but you're, 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 you're already, you're already a healthy individual. And like the, just that simple fact is going to help you build, you know, so much, you know, strength and, yeah. um, you know, muscle and, and, and you'll, you'll really notice a, a difference in your physique in the first, in the first, uh, in the first month or month, three months. So, but yeah. Dr. Molly, we're, we're, uh, I know we're out of time. I want to respect your time. Um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I can't thank you enough. And um, when you have more time, we'll have to we'll have to do this again and 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 dive more deep into these into these topics. I'd be happy to. Thanks a lot, Dr. Molly. Thank you.